God, we'll never know how much it cost you to forgive us, to make it so that we could be right with you. Father, we'll never know how much it cost you to be willing to send your son Jesus who would suffer and die on our behalf, who would come into this world and be treated badly, be treated brutally, all in order to be a sacrifice for us. Father, we'll never know how much it costs. And yet your calling and your challenge for us is to be able to to be able to take hold of your gift in our lives, to be able to move away from our brokenness, to move away from our mistakes, and to live according to your calling in our life. Well, Father, I know that as we go through our day-to-day, it's very easy for us to make mistakes, for us to sin, for us to struggle, for us to be easily entangled by the world. And so we're just going to take a moment right now, this morning, to go to you and just ask for forgiveness for anything that's in our lives that doesn't need to be there, anything that's in our lives that we struggle with, anything that's in our lives that we need to ask for forgiveness of. Let's just make peace with you right now. Let's go and do that, each of us individually. Father, forgive us of those things. And this morning, God, as we are trying to serve you, and we are going to talk about this issue of sorrow this morning, Father, may we commit our lives to you, and we thank you that you have opened up the door for that to be a reality. Father, we thank you that you have provided us with an abundance in our lives if we choose to accept it. Father, not material possessions, not things of this world, not our jobs, people, our careers, but instead you solely relying on you and you alone above all else. And God, this morning, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured out and on us, in each one of us. Father, that it would just challenge us and drive us forward, empower us to live our lives the way that you desire us to live. God, heal us and make us anew again with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How are you, Drew? I wanted to jump out of the window of that helicopter and just splatter on the trees to tell you the truth. Don't do that. It's only money. The American psyche is in turmoil, Drew, and we have miscalculated. I'm sorry. I have no rule book for this situation. They tell me that we are about to lose 972 million dollars. I am ill-equipped in the philosophies of failure. Walk with me, Drew. My screen, my screen. My basketball team. They don't even know yet. Global Environmental Watchdog Project will have to go. Sweet people. We could have saved the planet. But how do I make the concept of $972 million more real to you? 
It's the operating budget of a mid-sized country, a small civilization. It's big. It's so big, you could round it off to a billion dollars. I cry a lot lately. I promise. You know, especially in the economic climate that we live in now, it would be easy for us to cry and to have sorrow for our success and our money and what we wish our money would have done and what we wish our house would do and what we wish that the world would be the way it would be. And yet, at the same time, as we're going to talk about this morning, we see in the movie clip, we see uh, Orlando Bloom and Alec Baldwin there having a discussion about losing $972 million, uh, which I know is a lot to me, it's a lot to you, I can't even imagine what that would be like. But at the same time, even a loss, something like that, is still what the Bible calls a worldly sorrow. And this morning we're going to be talking about what godly sorrow is and how it relates to us who want to pursue God and we want to move out of lukewarmness and get to hot. Well, um, the series that we've been working on uh, is Good to Great, with apologies to Jim Collins. If you read his book, it's not really related to his book, bestseller, good book, check it out. But uh, it's really, just, I'm just stealing the title and the, you know, sort of the back of the book blurb um, from it. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking about this issue of moving from good to great in our spiritual lives. For us to move out of lukewarmness and into being hot. Our five-week series then uh, is on not being lukewarm. This is the challenge that we face in the church today because there's a temptation for the church in America to be lukewarm. For us to be accepting of what we are, for us not to go for the victory, but for us to go for honorable mention. Our society, just like the church in Laodicea as we talked about the first week, we applaud honorable mention. We applaud mediocrity. We applaud it because we don't want to really do anything about it and challenge it in our lives. But my goal here this morning and for the last couple of weeks and next couple of weeks is to challenge you not to be mediocre in your life with God. Because mediocrity is not going to get you by. Lukewarm is not going to get you by. Or another way of, of defining the series is how good is the enemy of great. That's sort of one of the subtitles of Jim Collins' book because he argues that if a company is a good company... It is actually like, you know, if you have a good, you know, business out there, that that is actually the enemy of being a great business. Because once you become good, you tend to be like, yeah, we're good. We're in fifth place. Sales are fourth place. All right. Let's just be happy with that and just be okay. But good is the enemy of being great and lukewarm is the enemy of being hot. We've been talking about Francis Chan book, Crazy Love. It's controversial in a way. It's the best probably the best-selling Christian book right now, but it's been controversial in a way because he doesn't consider lukewarm Christians to be lukewarm Christians. Throughout his book, he just says lukewarm people because he's not sure that they are actually believers. I don't go quite that far, but as we talked about in our strategy the first week, we talked about what? Revelation 3. And in Revelation 3, it talks about the church in Laodicea, which a lot of people see as being parallel to the church in the West. And Jesus says that he's going to do what with lukewarm believers? Lukewarm people, he's going to do what? He's going to vomit and puke them out of his mouth, right? A graphic, beautiful, 
<laughs> image from the Bible, right? That this is what Jesus is going to do. And so it is imperative that we do not accept mediocrity, that we do not do what the Laodiceans did, um, that we do not accept honorable mention, but that we pursue the prize and be hot for God. We talked about the church in Laodicea, and we talked about this metaphor that in our world, um, when we read Revelation 3 because of the way English language works, um, we tend to think that when Jesus says, be hot or cold, don't be lukewarm. We tend to think that hot means to be on fire for God, and cold means to hate God, and lukewarm means to be in the middle. Um, that's an okay interpretation, but if you were in the first century and you read Revelation 3, you knew about the city of Laodicea, just like you would know about the city of New York or the city of L.A., and you would have known that people in Laodicea had a uh, a... A liquid problem. They had a water problem. And so if they waited till the water was cold and it was cool and it sat overnight, the sediment had sort of drifted out of it, you know, floated down to the bottom and they drank it then, then it was good. Or if they went to the hot springs and they used it hot for medicinal purposes, it was good. Um, lukewarm was the problem. When you stuck your mouth to the aqueduct and the water, tepid water filled with sediment and junk came out, you wanted to puke it out of your mouth. It was really disgusting. And um, so in the first century, you could say, I'm going to be cold as ice for Jesus, right? <laughs> and people would have not really had the metaphor or the misunderstanding they do today. But we're going to stay on the hot side, even though you, it's proper, it'd be okay in the Bible to say, I'm going to be as cold as ice for the Lord. Um, we're going to just go keep it on the hot side, and we're going to talk this issue about warming up. We also mentioned in the first week, we talked about how the church in Laodicea, like the church in America, it was so wealthy. I mean, they had all the money that they could basically do with. Um, they had all the food and the shelter and the clothing that they needed. They were wealthy, and so they really were comfortable. They had no need to really do anything. They didn't really need to serve God or be involved in God's and what he was doing in our world because they were comfortable. And that's a struggle that we in the church in the West that we struggle with. We're comfortable where we're at. Just let somebody else serve God. I have a business to run. Let somebody else serve God because I'm working on my career. Let somebody else serve God because I've got money and I don't really need to mess with that sort of thing. I don't want to get my hands dirty, right? And that's the way the church in Laodicea was. So we talked about that in the first week. The second week, uh, we talked about, as we started talking about smoldering, uh, we talked about this issue of desiring God and having relationship with Him as being a part of what moves a person from lukewarm to hot. Now this is the hard thing. Because if you were to ask me, Pastor, how do you make a lukewarm person go from lukewarm to hot? I don't know. I mean, it's tough, right? And for some reason, I don't know why, when people become believers or they, they come into church and they raise their hand, they sort of fit into one of two categories. They just sort of, a lot of them just settle in and become lukewarm. Some of them get really excited and on fire, and by on fire I don't mean crazy. I just mean completely sold out and being a follower of Jesus. We don't want you to be lukewarm because lukewarm is Jesus vomiting you out of his mouth, right? We got to get you over to hot, but how that happens, that's, uh, that's hard. So we talked to last week about desire for God is a big part of it. That if you desire God and you desire him every day, you will drift over into hotness, even if you're lukewarm. Last week, I mentioned that the best way to go from lukewarm to hot that I could think of was you experienced a personal tragedy. And that went over like a lead balloon because everybody looked at me like, are you trying, you're telling me I should seek out personal tragedy and destruction in my life? That's what I should do? No, I wasn't recommending that. 
But I was just simply pointing out the fact that for some reason when we experience personal tragedy, as sad as it is, when someone dies, when, when we go through a hurricane or earthquake, we lose our home, something happens like that, it causes us to leave lukewarmness and move towards being on fire for God. I don't know what it is, it's being shaken up that does it. But I mentioned there's a harder way, which is just us choosing to desire God, for us to say, as of this day, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, no matter where that path leads, that's what I'm going to do. And by the way, I pointed out last week that experience becomes a very important factor. The more experience you have with God, the more palpable and the more tangible He becomes in your life, and the more willing you are to follow Him, whatever He asks. Experience becomes important. Now, we tend to be a, this church tends to be in the Christian tradition of a Bible teaching church. And so in a Bible teaching church, the danger is lots of people coming in, sitting in the pew, soaking in the knowledge, and then just being, not doing anything about it, right? That's the danger, okay? There's a danger on the other side, which is the churches that are, woo, yeah, everybody's doing stuff, and, but they don't know what they're doing, right? And those, that, that has led to a lot of problems too. Alright, so what we want to do is we want to get some knowledge about what God wants us to do, but then we want to actually act on it. We want to live out our lives. Remember, being a Christian is not a religion, it is a way of life. It is us following Jesus no matter what He calls us to do. So last week we started smoldering. This week we're going to start to sizzle a little bit. You guys go to Sizzler whenever they... It seems like Hollywood always mentioned that randomly in movies. You know, I watch a movie, they're like, let's go to Sizzler. And on the East Coast, you don't really have that. So I never knew what it was until I moved out here. But we're going to start to sizzle this morning a little bit, okay? And uh, sizzling in our relationship with God. This morning is going to be a difficult message. I know I say that a lot. But it's going to be a difficult message because it's just going to be difficult. And you'll see why in a minute. Because we're going to be talking about sorrow and I'll tell you what, nothing brings the people into the church house like preaching on sorrow, right? If I preach on, you can get a Mercedes, man, the whole, you know, hey, if we advertise, for, uh, this is mean, but it's true. If we advertise free Easter egg hunt at Easter, man, the church is packed out, right? But if we advertise, we're going to be preaching on sorrow. <laughs> it's like me and Roland and Ramir, and that's it. No, I'm just kidding. You guys are here too. But uh, Okay, so we're going to talk about this issue today of sizzling. We're going to see what the Bible says. You want to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at the Psalms again too. Psalms are very experiential, and so they're really good to sort of get us on the right path. But we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, it'll be up on the big screen as well. But uh, I'm going to refer back there, so you want to keep your finger there. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Just a short kind of statement from Paul, which is very interesting. Uh, here's what the Bible says. Psalm 31, first of all. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength. I am wasting away from within. Okay, just tuck that in the back of your mind. This issue about sin draining our strength and wasting away from within. Now, we're going to jump to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 10 and 11. Here's what Paul says. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which, by the way, is in contrast to the kind of sorrow that God wants us to have, okay, so two kinds of sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. <clears throat> Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. 
Now, we're going to talk about what this, these kinds of sorrows are this morning. Here's the question we're going to be facing this morning. What makes a person go from lukewarm to hot? This is going to be the challenge because many of us are going to struggle. We're going to be tempted to remain lukewarm. Perhaps we got some bad advice when we first became a Christian. Someone told you to go sit in the back of the church and don't ever say anything or do anything ever again. But we're going to try to get you sizzling here this morning. And there's going to be some sizzle because we're going to be talking about sin and sorrow. And that's that's... It's going to, well, I don't know if it'll make us cry, but it's definitely going to have some, uh, some sizzle to it. All right. What makes a person go from lukewarm to hot? First of all, we must hate sin in our life. We must hate sin in our lives. In order for us to become hot, there has to be a break in our lives between sin and our pursuit of God. How this break comes, it's going to be messy. However you solve it, it's great. It's awesome. For your life, but you've got to have this break. There's got to be a break in your life with sin. You've got to hate sin in your life. Now, let's talk about sin. I know that, again, in the area of popularity, um, sin is not a popular topic. I realize that. But let's define it better because then it will become more palatable. Um, in, in our world, people generally define sin as being what? Well, that's the biblical, that's the biblical definition. But in our world, people define it as just doing wrong. In first service, Roland wasn't here. Somebody shouted out doing wrong, right? And doing wrong is not really what sin is. I mean, that's part of sin. But sin is just anything that separates us from God. So Roland jumped right to the biblical idea, which is good. That's fine. And so sin is anything that separates us from God. Anything that we don't, anything that we do that's wrong and keeps us away from God, but also anything that we don't do. So, for example, classic example, if we have an affair, if we're married and we have an affair, then that is sin, okay? But if we also never read our Bible and we never pray, that also is just as much sin. Both of them will separate you from God and will destroy any relationship that you have with God if you stay in that sin and don't leave it and go back to God. So we must hate sin in our lives. It's important that we do that. Now, I know we're in church and we're not supposed to hate things, but you're hating the inward nature of yourself that wants to rebel against God. The dark part of your soul that everyone has, that is what we must hate, that is what we must put aside, that is much what we must fight against every day of our lives. David said in the Psalms that, that the, that the uh, sin does what? It's a cancer that eats away at our lives, right? It damages, it destroys us, and that's exactly what happened. Sin eats away at our desire to experience God. So here's the thing, we may say today that we want to be hot. We want to be hot for God. We want to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus, right? We want to be committed to Him. But there's nothing like sin to knock us away and keep us away from serving God. Sin is what encourages us not to follow God because it encourages us to be comfortable. Now, who knows what this is right here? See if you guys are smart in first service. They didn't get it. What is this? Come on, we got a bunch of doctors over here. What is it? These are cells. And these are cancer cells, okay? So these are cells right here. Sorry, I was pointing it back. These are cells, and these are cancer cells right here. So the cancer, what is it doing? It's eating the good cells. That's what's what, I mean, that's not the medical thing. I'm not an oncologist, but that's basically what's going on there. When I Googled tumor eating away from at people, I came up with tons of really terrible photos of people that I couldn't show this morning that would have been a lot more graphically uh, descriptive of what the Bible's talking about here with sin, because the Bible talks about sin eating away at our very lives. And this is what happens, because when we struggle with sin, it eats away at our lives. Now, let's talk about this for a second. As a student of the church in America, and since we're talking about lukewarmness, 
There are a lot of churches and a lot of traditions within the general Christian realm who basically say, don't worry about sin. No big deal. You know, God's abundance is that you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be successful. And that's what you should stay focused on. So there's this whole thing, okay? They missed the boat completely. But then there's this other section of Christianity, unfortunately, I think that not as bad as the first, but their view of sin is this, is that sin is basically a qualifier or a quantifier of who's for God and who's against God. So they would say, if you're a sinner, that you don't, you sin that you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, then you don't sin. Okay? But what's the problem with that? Well, I know lots of people, people that I grew up with, people that I know, unfortunately, if I were to ask them, are you a sinner? They would say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? The Bible says in Romans 3 that everyone has rebelled against God. Everyone has sinned. There's no one righteous, no one good, no one who seeks after God. All have turned away from God. All have sinned. Right? And so there are people out there who will say, well, I don't know. You know, I go to church every Sunday. I, I don't, I don't have an affair. I'm not a sinner. But of course, I don't have sin in my life. But of course, there's a big problem with that, right? Because sin is a cancer that eats at everyone's life. And what makes a person godly is the one who fights against that cancer rather than accepting that cancer and allowing it to come in. Let me give you an example. If we were to go and we were to, uh, you know, go to the doctor, if we had cancer, if we had some disease, we had something in our lives, and we were to go to the doctor and the doctor say, listen, you know, this is, this is a bad disease, it's going to affect you, you got to choose whether to fight against it or to lay down and die. Now they don't say that, hopefully doctors like, you got to do this, you got to do that, Right? You know, you gotta keep fighting this. And that is exactly what happens when we have sin in our lives. The old, we have to keep fighting it. The Old Testament example, what is the best metaphor of sin in the Old Testament? Anybody know? Well, it's not the only one, but one of the best ones, one of the famous ones. What's one of the most famous Old Testament examples of sin? The metaphor for sin. The cooking example. What do I shout it out? Yeast. Very good. Great. Yeast, right? Now, I don't know how to cook anything, okay? So I couldn't tell yeast from dough from anything. Alright, I'm just going to show you my ignorance here. But I do know uh, from studying the Bible, not from you know uh, Julia Child or anything, uh, that when the yeast gets in the dough, that it just goes throughout the dough and you can't separate it, right? And it's what makes it rise and do all that stuff like that. And it's the same way. The Bible uses the metaphor of yeast as sin because our brokenness is so deeply indwelt within us. It is part of that human nature of who we are that there's no way we can get rid of it in this lifetime. Listen, the difference between someone who is hot for God and someone who is lukewarm is that both are sinners. Both have sin, but the one who is lukewarm for God accepts the sin and just pretends it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. The one who is hot for God fights against the sin every single day of their lives. I have some bad news for you if you're here. The Bible says that until the day you die, you will have sin in your life. Sorry, I, I wish that like you could reach an age like 50 and you'd be retired from sin. You know, you could just be re- retired. I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm just retired from all that, right? That would be awesome, you know? Okay, maybe 55, maybe 60, you know. But we'd be retired from it. But it doesn't work that way. Sin, the sin nature is so deeply ingrained in who we are that it is impossible for us to extricate it out of our lives. It just doesn't happen. We cannot remove it. We cannot kill it. We cannot do anything. Only our death will result in that sin being removed from our lives when God re-resurrects us, redoes us, renews us in our um, in our physical, spiritual, emotional form, everything that we are when we stand before God. So, here's the problem then. The problem is, is that as we go through life, 
is that as time passes, it is too easy to get comfortable with sin. That's what happens. I mean, as Christians, we settle into lukewarmness a lot of times because we accept sin. Let me just give an example. Let's say that our sin is speeding. I'm going to use speeding so that I don't, you know, so we don't get into a big fight here this morning, all right? And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I'm just going to use speeding, all right? And so what happens is, is that as time goes on, we just sort of speed more and more. 55, we'll just drive 65. Even though, you know, the Bible says we are to, as Christians, we are to obey man's law and we are to be, um, we are to uh, demonstrate ourselves um, in this world. Um, and even though we are to obey man's law, we, we go out there, we speed, ah, you know, 65, 55, it's only 10 miles over, no big deal, right? And so we get comfortable in that speeding, right? We get comfortable in that speeding. We accept it, we're, the fact that we do it. And, you know, we don't get caught, right? Because we get older and we get wiser about how to slow down. We see the cops, you know, how to be... We're just wiser, right? Not really biblical wisdom here. Just worldly wise, right? And so we, we slow down and we just, you know... But that, my friends, is becoming comfortable in sin. Now, you can take speeding out and put whatever you want to in there. All right, but that's what happened. The church in Laodicea, they were so wealthy that they didn't care about things. They just did what they enjoyed doing, and they allowed sin to creep into their lives. That's what happens, right? Sin doesn't, you know, sin isn't like this. It doesn't go, you know, bust down the door. Shane, I'm coming into your life. I'm sin. I'm coming in, and I'm going to take control of your life, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? Because then most of us would be like, wait a minute. I didn't, no, I don't want this, right? We'd fight against it. But it goes, Speed a little bit this morning. It's okay. You get late for work. There's a good reason. You can go and do it. Just speed. It's all right, man. Just, just relax. You know, you can get five extra minutes of sleep every morning if you just speed a little bit, right? That's all you need to do. That's what it does. Right? As time passes, too easy to get comfortable with it. This is what happens in the church in Laodicea and the church in the West, right? We're just so lazy about our sin and our struggles, right? If you Google, like, lazy cat, there's like a million pictures, you know? Funny, this is a funny one. Um, but this is sort of a good example of the way the church in Laodicea was and a temptation for us to be lukewarm Christians, right? Because everything seems okay, we have all our needs, and it doesn't seem like our sin is hurting anyone, right? We live in a society where we have the victimless crime. We hear that all the time. And it seems like, well, you know, if I don't pray, it's not hurting anybody. If I don't read the Bible, it's not, if I don't come to church, it's not hurting anybody. If I don't help out... If I don't do ministry, it's not hurting anybody. If I curse other people and don't really love them very well, it's not hurting anybody. If I look at things I'm not supposed to look at, it's not really hurting anybody. If I treat people wrongly, it's not really hurting anybody. I mean, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I can do what I want to, right? I'm master and commander of my own destiny. People get out of my way. It's my career, my life, right? But yet all these things is basically that right there, right? The fat cat doing what he wants to do which is part and parcel, not what God wants us to do. Let me say it again. Sin is something that we will always struggle with. If we're here this morning, me, I have sinned, you have sinned. We all struggle with sin. We all do the things that we don't want to do. We all don't do the things that we do want to do. That's what Paul says. And so the difference between someone who is trying to be hot for God is someone who gets up every morning and says, this cancer is not going to ravage my body. I'm going to fight against it. I'm going to be the victor of my life. I am not going to allow the sin to be in my life. The one who is lukewarm just says, you know, it's all good. It's all good. I'm willing to, you know, it's just a little sin. What difference does it make? That is a difference 
between someone who's lukewarm and hot. We must experience godly sorrow. For us to hate sin in our lives, it is necessary for us to experience godly sorrow. Now, what do I mean by this? Paul writes here, let me refresh our minds. Paul writes this in, in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So there's a contrast there, two different sorrows. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earn- And this is an example of the Corinthians. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. These are just examples. It may produce in you slightly different things, but we can see here this zeal and this uh, uh, readiness and this desire, this indignation to do to get away from sin, and all these other things is stirred up something in their lives. Listen. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> <clears throat> Sorry, sometimes I'm talking and I keep talking even though I need to take a breath. <clears throat> Worldly sorrow is regret over not getting what we want. Right? So here's the contrast that the Bible has. Worldly sorrow is regret over not getting what we want. When we saw the movie clip a second ago and we saw Orlando Bloom, you know, he lost $972 million and the guy, you know, Alec Baldwin would not have his basketball team, Right? And he was so sad because he didn't have his basketball team anymore. And he cried a river, right? And that's a good example of worldly sorrow. Listen, worldly sorrow is any time that we are sad over a loss of possession or a loss of quality of life or we don't get what we want. That's what worldly sorrow is. When we're sad because we lose money, we're sad because... We have, you know, have to pay extra money to fix our house. We're sad because we didn't get the promotion we wanted. We're sad because we didn't get the, our first choice of house. Or we're sad because we didn't get our first choice of our vacation house. Or we're sad because we can't go away this weekend. We're sad because of things don't really work out our way. Worldly sorrow is regret of not getting what we want. Now here's the key of worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is based on selfishness. We are sad at things that we can't have or we can't do. That's what worldly sorrow is. It's based on us. We are sad because we missed something for us. Now, I can't, let me give you an example. I can't imagine what $972 million is like. I can't even imagine it. If you're here and you can't imagine it, I don't know, come talk to me because I'd like to know what that would be like. Yeah, this is me being worldly sorrow right there. There you go, okay? But I can't imagine, you can't imagine, thanks for I can't imagine what it would be like to have uh, to have worldly sorrow. Uh, I mean, to, I can have imagine worldly sorrow. I can't imagine what it would be like to have $972 million. Now, however, imagine what it would be like to lose $972. All of us can imagine that, right? Oh, we would cry. We would be so sad. I mean, $972. You know what I could have bought with $972, right? That's what we say because that is worldly sorrow. Now, let me give you an example. The result of worldly sorrow is unfulfilled emptiness. Think about it for a second. If you lose $972, what happens? You cry, you moan, you complain, you whine, you try to find it again. But at the end of the day, it's just gone. It's gone. It's gone. Bye-bye. There's no redeeming quality. You don't learn a lesson from it the next day. I mean, maybe you learn, okay, don't leave my wallet on the light rail for people to take or something, you know what I mean? But you don't really learn anything from it. It's just gone. There's just sorrow there. And, you know, there's no getting over it. You don't get over it. You don't heal from losing $970. You just do what? Forget about it over time, right? Other things come in. 
And it's just gone. That's just the end of it. The result of worldly sorrow, because it's focused on herself, there's no redeeming quality. It's just a loss. You lose your house. You lose money. You lose your job. It's just the way it is. It's just there's no redeeming quality to it because it's focused on yourself. Now, let's contrast this with godly sorrow. By the way, worldly sorrow is not in and of itself wrong. Here's what Paul says. Paul saw, says that worldly, worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, which means if you don't have any godly sorrow too, results in spiritual death. Why does it result in spiritual death? Why does worldly sorrow without godly sorrow result in spiritual death? Because you go your whole life and you'll be sad because you lost your job. You'll be sad because you didn't become wealthy. You'll be sad because of this. You'll be sad because of that. And on the day you die, you'll be sad because of what you didn't have yourself, not because of what you were willing to give to God. You had no relationship with God. Your whole life has been based on what you got and what you didn't get. And the goodness of your life is what you achieved and what you bought and what you sold. And the badness of your life is just what you were not able to acquire or get or have. Now, Godly sorrow frees us from our errors by repentance. What is godly sorrow? Godly sorrow is this. Godly sorrow is based on divine influence. When we realize that we are hurting God. When we realize that we are not all that and a bag of chips. When we realize that we are not perfect. That we are not everything. That that our life has been a broken mess. And that we are willing to turn that over to God. That when we do that, God restores us, we feel sorry, we repent of our bad things, we repent of our sin, and God brings that sorrow into our lives to cause us and challenge us to live our lives better. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you know that speeding is wrong, right? And that speeding is a sin. Now, I'm just using speeding. I don't want everyone to come out of here this morning and feel like I'm trying to get you to stop speeding. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not really interested in that. I mean, that's an issue, but uh, I'm really issue, using this as a metaphor. You know what it is. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a financial problem, sin problem that's big in your life. Maybe it's a pride problem that's big in your life. Maybe it's a sexual problem that's big in your life. Maybe it's a, uh, I mentioned money problem in your life. Maybe it's an anger problem in your life. Maybe it's a love problem in your life. I don't know what what, it could be all of those. I don't know what it is. I'm just using speeding as a metaphor. But here's the thing. When you go out here and you speed and you have godly sorrow in your life, it's because you wake up one morning or you go to God or you look in the mirror or however that happens. The Holy Spirit convicts you of that and you're like, oh, I'm speeding. I feel bad about that. Not guilty, but you have sorrow in your heart because you know that you are doing what God doesn't want you to do and that Jesus suffered to free you from that, and yet you're continuing to do that. And that sorrow will cause you, will challenge you to live your life on fire for God rather than lukewarm. That's the benefit of godly sorrow. In fact, Paul says that godly sorrow is necessary for salvation because only when we're able to get rid of our sin and desire God that we are able to be saved and have a relationship with Him. Now, again... Remember this tale of the two churches I talked about a minute ago? Church that doesn't, sin doesn't exist. And this other church over here, these guys will say, wait a minute, if you're a believer, you need all sin out of your life. But listen, sin again is fundamental. It's the yeast, it's the human nature of our lives. We will fight against it until the day I die. But the difference is, is that God allows godly sorrow to come into our lives to continually tweak us and fight, help us to fight against the sin that's in our lives. 
You want to know the difference between a lukewarm person and a hot person? A lukewarm person just says, I don't want to experience sorrow over my sin. I just want to be comfortable and just speed as much as I want to. The godly person feels bad. They feel the call to repent and to move away from that sin. When they feel it and they experience that inside, it challenges them. No more cancer. I'm going to do whatever I can to get this cancer out of my life. They fight against it every single day of their lives and it causes them to love God more, to experience Him more, to want to be hot for Him more, to be more, more, more a follower of Jesus when we are able to do that in our lives. Look, the result of godly sorrow is action. You know, so, this week someone asked me, they said, Pastor, I'm still, I don't, I'm kind of confused about an issue about lukewarm. And they said, I don't understand why a lot of the people in the Old Testament were considered to be on fire for God when they made so many sins. They screwed up a lot, right? Well, how are they on fire for God? And so I thought about it, because, you know, a lot of people in the Old Testament, they were big sinners. They were. I mean, they, a lot of those people had really messed up lives. And yet, when we look at them, their lives are in the Bible so that we will emulate them, not their mistakes, but we will emulate their desire for forgiveness and their desire to be fully devoted to God and their desire to, to you, know, you know, to look forward to the Messiah in the, in the case of the Old Testament, to put their hope in Him. And, and so, the, the, what's the difference? And I thought about it, I thought about it this week, and I, you know, and I look to David because David is, you know, he's the anointed one. He is the Messiah with the little M. And, uh, you know, he's a good example in the Bible of someone that we want to learn a lot from. And, you know, he did a lot of very bad things. But I realized one thing that made David different and that made him special was his desire for action. You know, I mean, he... He was a man after God's own heart and he did wrong things. But then... He, it seemed like he experienced godly sorrow and he got right back up on his horse and did it again. Not the sin part, but the pursuing God part. You know, he didn't let it stay him down. He didn't let it stop him. He just fought all that much more harder to pursue God. Paul's the same way. I mean, Paul struggled with sin. He talks about it, thorn in the flesh, right? I mean, that's his metaphor. That's his use of the word there to describe what he's experiencing. But he said, I beat my body in submission because I am fighting against it every single day of my life. Listen, we in the church, we accept honorable mention. I mean, if, if, if Shane, you know, says, well, pastor, I only have like 30 sins that I'm not really worried about. I mean, can't I come in 30th place? Hey, you know, on the on NASCAR and the LPGA and the PGA Tour, I can be 30th place and still make a million dollars a year. That's not bad. I mean, I'll take 30th place, right? 30th place is pretty good. In our society, we award 30, we, we praise 30th. They even have the leaderboards on TV. You ever see those sports where they have like, and they'll go all the way down to like 30 or 60th place? Why do you, you know, I guess it's important to rank them that low, but come on. Do you really want to be 30th place? Do you really want to be 27th place? Do you want a gold star for honorable mention? The Bible calls us to not pursue mediocrity, to not pursue lukewarmness, to not pursue honorable mention, but to run the race to win it. Victory. And victory is within everyone's grasp who is willing to hate sin in their lives. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say victory is within grasp for people who are willing to get rid of sin completely. Because that's not possible. Victory is within the grasp of anyone who hates sin and desires it out of their life and is willing to fight with it until they day they die. And by the way, that's what made David special because even when David stumbled and sinned in a terrible way, he got right back up on his horse and said, I don't care, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask for forgiveness, and then I'm gonna pursue God doubly again. 
Same thing with Paul. And it was their action. But we in the church in the West, we praise inactivity. We praise the fat cat who comes in and just sits in the pew and just enjoys the boring message and just pays whatever they need to pay, just the minimal amount so that they can get by and get done and get their honorable mention. But I, I, the problem is, is that honorable mention doesn't seem to be what the Bible's calling us to do. That's Honorable mention seems to be on the pukey side of things, right? You know, the whole Jesus vomit you out of your mouth sort of thing? That's what honorable mention feels like to me. I don't want to be honorable mention. So the result of, result of godly sorrow is action. You know, I mentioned the first service I was meaner on the guys than the girls, but I'm a guy, so it's easier to be. You know what? If you want to get sin out of your life, then sometimes it takes action. If your sin is struggling with is cursing, maybe you just need to stop talking. If sin is looking at things that doesn't, you know, on the TV or the computer that you shouldn't be looking at, maybe you need to get the TV or the computer out of your house or just shut it off while you're at home. You can survive without a TV. I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's almost impossible, but you can survive without a TV if that's what's causing you to stumble. Listen, if a cancer person, if you have cancer, you're diagnosed with cancer, and the doctor says you got to stop eating peanut butter, and you love peanut butter, you got to stop eating peanut butter, or it's going to make your cancer worse, what are you going to do? Only a fool eats peanut butter after that, right? Now, I know, some of you are like, well, okay, wait, I did get diagnosed with this, and I'm not supposed to eat this, but on special occasions I do. Leave me alone, pastor. I like french fries, I like peanut butter, I like whatever it is, right? I know, I know. And you know what? I, and God knows. And, and God knows because we're not perfect, and that's what grace is for. We're going to stumble. It's not the fact that we're going to be perfect every single time, but it's the fact that if we want to pursue victory in this life, we will fight against sin with every breath that we will have. We will not be the lazy cat. We will not be... We will not have worldly sorrow and worry about the fact that we don't have enough money or if we had more of this, we had more of that, but we will try to hate sin and get it out of our lives at all costs. Listen, here's the cool thing about godly sorrow. Real quickly here. Is that we can put godly sorrow to work in our life. And just let me give you two examples real quickly. First of all, the Bible tells us that sorrow can do a lot of good. Okay? Paul mentions some examples. There may be different examples in your life. Um, you know, he talks about zeal, alarm, indignation, all these things that wake people up, right? I mean, listen, you've seen this morning, Roland has slept throughout this whole service. He's been here going, right? The whole service, he's been sleeping, right? And he's going to sleepwalk right out of this door. And you know what? I can go out this door this morning, and I could go up to him, and I could just punch him right in the stomach, and that would wake him up, right? Well, Roland say no, because you can't. You hit like a girl, right? Maybe. But it would wake him up, right? I mean, he would be awake. It would do it. It would shock him. And that's the purpose of godly sorrow, is that when we look in the mirror and we realize that we are not living our lives the way God wants us to do and God desires for us, it should shock us into living our lives better, into committing our lives to Him. It should be a shock. It should be difficult. It should be a challenge to us. You know, again, we live in a world where we're not supposed to challenge each other. We accept honorable mention. But here today, I want to challenge you not to accept mediocrity. One way to experience godly sorrow is to ask God regularly, show me my sins so I can repent of them. Repent means not just say forgiveness, but you know, get forgiven and then just keep on going in the other, take action, go in the other direction. But that's not popular, I know, right? Because you don't want it, nobody wants to do that. We'd rather just be comfortable. But you know what? If you want to be a victor, if you want to win the race, you don't just show up at the track and look at the track and be like, man, that's a long... That's a long distance i got to run. I'm just going to sit down today and have a Twinkie, right? That's what I'm going to do. 
If you want to be Arnold and be a professional bodybuilder, right? You don't go to the gym and be like, oh man, that barbell looks really heavy. I'm just going to take some human growth hormone and I'll be, I'll be good to go, right? That's not the way it works. For us to be able to experience godly sorrow, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. But it is what will help transform our lives and move us from lukewarm to hot. Again, you're running for victory. You're going for victory. Don't do the Christian faith for honorable mention. I don't even know if it works that way. But don't do it that way. Who wants mediocrity? Do it to win. And part of doing it to win is allowing God to tweak your life and for the Holy Spirit to show you what you're doing wrong. Now, Paul actually pointed out to the church in Corinth what he's doing wrong. I know it would go over awesome if I did a message on what you all are doing wrong. We just don't do that in the world today. And probably that's okay, because it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict you of what you're doing was wrong. But you know what? Whatever it takes for godly sorrow to come into your life, make it a reality. So that you may be able to pass away from doing, from being comfortable in sin and being able to serve God, whatever that may be. Quickly here, a side effect of sorrow is that we're more willing to serve. We've been talking about service. And you know what's cool about sorrow? Is that it's really hard to think you're better than someone else when you have godly sorrow in your life, right? Because when you have godly sorrow, you're painfully aware of the mistakes that you make. And by being painfully aware, it makes you more able to love other people, doesn't it? And it makes you more able to serve them, doesn't it? Because you don't love people and you don't serve people when you think you're better than them. When you're just comfortable. Why should I serve someone when I'm comfortable? I don't need to do that. But yet when we experience godly sorrow in our lives, it makes us love people more. It makes us more likely to be willing to serve them. And by the way, loving them and serving them makes it more likely that you will be hot for God and be a passionate follower of Jesus. It's all interconnected. And so make sure that that's a part of your life. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and I am not going to pray here um, for folks that they would experience godly sorrow. I think that folks have to desire that in their lives. But I pray for all those here this morning that do desire that, that you would give them godly sorrow, that they would, they would be able to look in the mirror and be challenged to hate the sin in their lives, to move away from sin and to take hold of who you are and to, and to just repent of it and, and, and say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to fight that cancer in my life. I'm going to go for victory in my life. Father, I don't know what the str- struggle it is, whether it's speeding or any of the other issues, whatever addiction that we each face. Father, may you convict and may you challenge each of us not to live our lives that way anymore. God, I pray that we would be more loving, that we'd be more serving by having this godly spirit of sorrow in our lives. And Father, I I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to work in each of our lives in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.